0: Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 197 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Friday, March 26, 2021, and we are live with the Texas Law Reunion 2021 audience. They're all on mute. I assure you, they're all howling and cheering and, and couldn't be happier, but we'll never really know.
1: I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, I'm thinking of the scene in Major League where Bobby was like, listen to that crowd, and then he and Mon, woo, hey, hey, battery, yeah, and they pretend to be the because there's no one in the stands.
0: All too fitting. Um, we're really excited to have a whole bunch of fantastic Longhorn alumni uh, in the virtual audience, and in a little while in the program, we're going to get to Q&A with any questions they pose. How's uh, your bracket, by the way? Uh, <laughs> oh, God, you went right to it. Um yeah, my bracket's in flames. I, I had Iowa pick to win it all. They were going to just edge out Illinois. <laughs> After each had to get past Texas and Texas Tech. <laughs> You're
1: in Texas in the final four? It, I'm contractually obligated. You are not. I didn't even know to Texas was in the Sweet 16. Well, y- did you hear the news? I did. Spoiler, everybody. Shaka yes.
0: Smart's going to be the new coach at Marquette. That's a very happy result for everyone concerned, I think. <laughs>
1: I think that's the most political thing we've said on this podcast in quite a while.
0: <laughs> I, it's the very definition of a Pareto optimal
1: move. <laughs> um, all I'm going to say about my bracket is um, go Michigan because I'm a Michigan family product and I, I have been thus far rewarded in my Michigandy, Michigander support.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, that's <laughs> you're, I have zero chance to win any bracket competitions anywhere with the horrific choices I made um i'm quite disappointed about it we'll get to some more frivolity towards the end in the meantime just as filler till we come back to sports ball and other such fun topics uh we're going to talk a little bit about war powers oh yeah there is you know, some serious stuff we actually know something about yeah. uh, we're going to talk we're going to check in with for spirit. yourself bobby <laughs> in which case we, i know nothing about it we'll talk about some things happening at the supreme court and other courts uh we've got a, a interesting case in the District of Columbia uh, federal court involving a Chinese company that actually has had success, some preliminary success in challenging uh, a government effort to effectively sanction them in a way that would affect uh, trading in their equities. We're going to talk, we have an extradition theme. We've got the first ever extradition of a North Korean citizen there's a, there's a catch that explains how it happened, but we'll note that, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper into a intriguing case, the the Rafikian case. This is a case that's not really about well, it's not about extraditing Rafikian, it's about the legal consequences of the activities this uh, guy from California, uh, well engaged in in coordination with the with Mike Flynn's private company, Flynn Intel Group, which is defunct now, but uh, involving the Turkish cleric. Fatullah Gulen, who is uh, loathed by the Erdogan regime, they wanted to improve the political prospects in the United States for being able to extradite him. And uh, let's just say that at the end of the day, this resulted in a jury convicting Rafikian for acting as an unregistered agent of the Turkish government and conspiring to do so. And then the trial judge uh, directed acquittal after the jury verdict and conditionally, uh, also granted a new trial in the event that his, his direction of acquittal got overturned. And now both of those have been overturned and the jury conviction's been reinstated. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, we'll get to the audience Q&A. Steve, did I omit anything substantive?
1: Um, probably, but you know this is how I, I sneak things past you. I don't preview them. And then I just get to do- drop the line in the middle of the show.
0: I like that, because then if I'm not sure what to say, I can say, well, I'm not, I'm not really prepared so. yeah. The secret of the show, as longtime listeners know, is we're really not prepared. This is by design a uh, truly water uh, cooler type conversation with minimal. Well, I
1: mean, it was it was one of our rules when we started, right? That we weren't gonna that, that we weren't gonna do this unless it was fun, and that the more, exactly. more the more it became mature, the more we were gonna be sort of you know. And I, I have to say, I mean, you know, four years in, I'm still having fun. I'm having a blast.
0: And actually, you know, let's just note we've got the big bicentennial, as it were, episode. It's not quite the right way to describe it. We have episode 200 coming up and we are going to have we're going to find some way for that to be wide open for anyone to attend and participate in. So
1: you can do a second live episode webinar attendees. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. This is not your only chance. I think for
0: that one, we might need to just uh, go whole hog, though, and just have to be a giant Zoom room. Let everyone speak up and cheer and make
1: noise. Like, uh, like in lieu of fun, the way that the way that Ben and and Kate do that.
0: Yes. Let's, why not? Uh, I can actually think of several reasons why not, but we're going <laughs> to do it anyways. Okay, friend. War powers. Okay. So there's been some hearings. There have been some bills. Um, I, I think I'll say the following. I think both the following will happen and should happen. And that is the repeal of the 2002 authorization for use of military force, which is not the one following 9-11, it's the one preceding the invasion of Iraq that was specific to Iraq. Uh, And that will go hand in hand with a repeal for, a repeal for, I guess it's still on the books, the old 1991 Persian Gulf War authorization, sort of a two peas in the pod, uh, elimination of statutory authorization to use force in and concerning Iraq, and I, I'm trying to just paper over all the complexities of exactly what they authorized. But it's about Iraq. Um, it's the position of the administration that nothing we currently do depends on the O2 authorization. And I will note here that the O2 authorization, I, I, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think it was cited. When the Biden administration authorized a recent use of force against an Iranian uh, proxy group operating at the uh, Syria-Iraq border, nope. and that, that which underscores something that anyone who's read my work over time knows I like to come back and harp upon, which is it, it is of course important and all good to focus on what the statutory authorizations are, but you must have an understanding of what the background Article Two constitutional authority claims are by presidents of both parties for generations, or at least a couple of generations now, and just how sweeping they are when it comes to using one-off instances of force where uh, some opposing entity has carried out attacks against U.S. personnel. So uh, I wasn't surprised to see Article Two play a central role justifying that prior strike. And I'm not surprised that the administration would say, it's not going to actually affect us to repeal the O2AMF. To me, the O2AMF, its significance, the reason it's worth the candle to repeal it, and it's not okay just to leave it sitting there since it's not being used, is the issue that came up all the time during the Trump administration. Might someone, a, an entrepreneurial sort, uh, argue that the 0 2 amf and heck, maybe even the Persian Gulf resolution, uh, sorry, that sounds like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, the Persian Gulf authorization, uh, maybe those two sort of can function as sort of an all-purpose, let's go after Iran uh, beyond what Article 2 would sustain.
1: So uh, can I back up a second? Because I mean, I, I suspect that in our audience today, we have some folks who um, know our podcast well, and maybe some folks who don't. I mean, we. this is a common theme for us in talking about how there are still multiple prior use of force authorizations (AUMFs) on the books. How many of those are effectively dormant? Um, right? How Congress has not seen fit in any of those statutes to include sunsets, which means that they stay on the books until and unless they are repealed. Um, and you know, I think you and I, although we disagree, and have disagreed sometimes vehemently about what an ideal forward-looking AUMF would look like. I think we do agree that, there's, that that getting rid of the ones we just have no need for is good policy.
0: Yeah, it's just good housekeeping. Uh, and it prevents uh, problematic entrepreneurial interpretations that come out of the woodwork
1: somewhere. But so, but so I think here's where there's daylight between us, or at least here's where historically there has been daylight between us, which is I find all of these efforts completely unsatisfying because Congress gets to say, look, we're doing meaningful war powers reform. um, When in fact they are, you know, chopping off just the lowest hanging fruit on a very, very tall and messy tree and not actually engaging in what the real sort of problem areas are, especially the the continuing prevalence of the 2001 authorization for the use of military force and how broadly it has been interpreted by now, you know, four successive administrations.
0: So we totally agree that there we disagree. No, we we disagree for sure about whether that tree is messy and problematic, but we totally agree that all the there was a lot of hoopla surrounding this this legislation that's moving to repeal the 91 and 2002 AMS. And and it doesn't change anything except, as I said a moment ago, it's it's useful in good government practice and it and it helps forestall weird possible future interpretations. Uh, But, but it has really nothing to do with things that are currently happening. And so, uh, I think all the hoopla in the, in the, Hey, Congress is retaking the war powers, totally misplaced. They're not, they're not, they're, they're doing exactly what political scientists would say is, is likely for them to do, which is where there's an area where they can look active and forestall that kind of criticism without actually taking any real risk that they're going to be caught looking, um, looking uh, unwise for having taken away an authority it turned out we needed, this this suggests it's an area they can operate.
1: But that but that's why if anything it's worse than nothing, right? Because you know Congress gets to sort of think that it has washed its hands of the war powers issue when in the con when what you know, what I'm concerned about in the long term is the continuing accretion of power in the executive branch, whether through arrogation or just you know inertia, um and Congress, you know, by repealing completely defunct statutes does nothing to actually halt that.
0: So let's dig in a little bit to air for the audience where we where we agree and disagree about what a uh, proper reform or alteration of the 2001 AUMF, the one that's actually been doing a lot of work since 2001, this is the post 9/11 AUMF, which authorized all necessary and appropriate force to use against those whom the president determines are responsible for the 9-11 attacks and those uh, harboring them in, in order to forestall further attacks. And famously, this of course was originally understood to apply to original Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, uh, but, but very, very early on was understood to, we could say grow with al-Qaeda as it evolved, as it decentralized, as it morphed out. And also, and I think it's actually separate, also picking up, there we go, there's the operative provision, also picking up along the way, those groups that are not strictly speaking al-Qaeda or the Taliban, but that enter into the armed conflict uh, alongside them against the United States, such as, for example, uh, uh, certain organizations operating armed, organized armed groups in the Afghanistan theater that took the field and were absolutely engaging in military operations against the government of Afghanistan and against the United States and its allies, but were not, strictly speaking, al-Qaeda or the Taliban. So this associated force category and and especially the idea that that AUMF just goes with whatever new manifestations of al-Qaeda emerge, even when, like the Islamic State, they start off as a as a regional variant and then break with the original mothership and become adversarial to it, but they stay within the scope of the AUMF nonetheless. Um, This has been a font of controversy. And I think one of the things that's made it hard to contemplate a refreshing and, and tailoring of the 2001 AUMF over the years is disagreement about how to come to grips with the question of organizational scope of which groups, let alone which individuals, are linked enough to those groups, but just at the organizational level, who counts? Uh, Steve, what's your sense about the realm of the possible in Congress and the Biden administration on that issue? What a new revised version of AUMF might say that in some sense would be different than the than
1: the the language you've just shared? I think the problem is that, the, I mean, so let's be clear, the language that I put on the screen is, the, is section 2A of the 2001 AUMF enacted on September 18th, 2001. So we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of, of that statute, which is still un, really unchanged in all material respects. Um, and I guess, you know, what I'd like to see and, what I, and what's politically possible, I think, are two very different things. I mean, I would like to see some articulation of exactly who we're allowed to use force against. Of course, the AUMF doesn't even say Al-Qaeda, because when it was enacted, we had not yet publicly identified Al-Qaeda as the progenitors of the 9-11 attacks. Um, And and most importantly, Bobby, I want a sunset, right? Not because, as is often caricatured, we should be telling our enemies when the war is over, but because I think it's important to require Congress to repeatedly buy back in, as opposed to the inertia just being that this will default in operation. And so, you know, even if you and I might disagree about how we would parameterize who's covered, um, like I want Congress to be having that conversation every two or three years.
0: Yeah, we agree on the sunset and, and pretty much always have. Um, we probably disagree on what the right listing approach is. And so here's, here's how I see what the options basically are. Assuming that one wants to keep the statute in place at all, which of course there are some who would say, no, it's, it's time to remove the statute and stop claiming there's an armed conflict between the United States and well, whoever. Um, so I get that, but set that aside. And we're talking here now about, what about what's the space for debate amongst those who would like there still to be statutory authorization of some sort and one model is you take some or all of the particular groups that right now are publicly identified as in scope, and you get rid of the generic categories and you say just, these are the groups. It's Al Qaeda, uh, you know, would you still say the Afghan Taliban if, if as the Biden administration has said, we're gonna be entirely, President Biden yesterday said, like, by next year, not by May 1st, but by next year, we will not continue to have forces there. Um, I mean, we'll see. It's easy to say that now. I'm not going to put money on that. In fact, I'll I'll tell you right now. I predict we will still have forces in Afghanistan next year. Um,
1: But college or NCAA tournament predictions?
0: (laughs) You know, I have a I have a lot more knowledge in this area than I do NCAA basketball.
1: I'm just messing with you.
0: I know. Um, So could be Al Qaeda. I certainly would probably still say Al Qaeda. Uh, It's certainly. I think the most definite thing is it would still say the Islamic State. Query whether it would still say Al shabaab the Somalia-based East African group. I suspect it would. Um, would it say AQAP, the uh, the Al Qaeda operation in in Yemen? I don't know anymore. Um, I don't I don't know. Would it say uh, Would it Would it name Boko Haram? Would it name I, I forget the, the latest iteration of the label for it, but the group that operates in the Sahel region that originally once long ago was AQIM. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and before that, the Salafist Group for Call and Combat. don't know. These are really interesting questions and important questions, Um, but but that's not really where the the big fight is, right? Steve, I bet you'll agree with this. The real fight is uh, you, you can probably get an agreement about a certain set of concrete names. The fight emerges when you debate whether the new AMF would also have an expander clause explicitly saying, additional groups that may be identified as associated forces of those groups or or spinoffs of those groups because of course the the lesson of the past 20 years is you're going to continue to get organizational morphine and there's a school of thought that says fine when that happens come back to congress if you want statutory authority and there's another school of thought that says "No, no no that's too slow too uncertain we don't want to tie the executive branch's hands um i think that debate often is poorly informed by a realistic sense of what the executive branch would do in the absence of statutory authority when relying just on its Article II authorities. Uh, I think there's a a lot more likelihood and legal leeway for using force, for better or worse, even without the statute. And people tend to to get these more utopian notions of what is turned off, what is taken off the table. You just don't have that statutory
1: authority for it. But you could, I mean, you could, so I don't want to get lost in the weeds here because I do want to move on to the rest of our agenda. I just want to say, I think you could split the difference, which is to say have some fancy sort of expander clause that requires the administration to jump through a bunch of hoops and to provide a factual predicate to Congress, but then have the expander clause laps when the rest of the statute does, right? That is to say, you know, allow, allow the executive branch to expand the list only temporarily and require Congress to actually affirmatively approve the expansion when the statute yeah, right. otherwise expires.
0: I thought, you know, we might be able to agree on that. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that if you're gonna have a sunset anyways, then that kind of happens no matter what and make it explicit that there's sort of a ratification that occurs.
1: Well, but, um, but, but, but I think that, here's the thing. You say it would kind of happen no matter what. As you know, in the national security space, Congress will often just re reenact the statute without changing anything substantively. And my point here is in this context, that would be deemed ineffective, right?
0: That- so sunset sunset and just renewal isn't enough. You want, it would be, a, be sort of a, I'm looking for the right adjective here. It, it's sunset plus for any add-on groups.
1: But basically that, basically that Congress's refusal to include an, uh, an executive added group in the next renewal will be preclusive of its inclusion under the statute. Right, so
0: that thus for Congress to actually fully continue the status quo when the sunset arrives, they've got to do more than just like a one-line low accountability thing. Yeah, I, I could get on board with that. Is it possible we found agreement on this? I mean, sure. I this is th- never gonna happen. I remember arguing about this topic, you know, in like 2000, what ten or eleven at at Fordham. Yep. You and me and Jen Daskell and others were. This right after me, Jack Goldsmith, Ben Wittis, and Matt Waxman put out a proposal for, uh, you know, AMF reform that included an expander clause, and you guys were hammering us on us for doing that. But maybe we have finally identified a way for everybody to be happy. Maybe we're, we must be overlooking something. <laughs>
1: no it's just not politically possible like i mean the congress would write statutes that way and the politics wouldn't be in it no i know. well
0: i don't know I sense, a, I sense a co-authored piece coming on Ooh,
1: yes. something you and i both have time to do
0: <laughs> no no it's co-authored by somebody else
1: <laughs> oh excellent. all right uh should we move to the supreme court
0: speaking of things people don't have time to do yeah what's it, we, so what's happening with our friends in washington
1: in so we actually state? have two interesting well two interesting national security law related developments in the supreme court which where National Appeal has actually been a pretty quiet topic I think, for the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk about Sarnayev first?
0: Yeah, I, this will be brief. You, on a prior sh- episode of the show, we noted that um, this is the First Circuit. Um, uh, fe- Rem- remind me, if, I didn't look this up. <laughs> You'll have to remind me. I know,
1: I yeah, so the, so the Federal Appeals Court in Boston um, had thrown out the death sentence yeah. um, that a jury had uh, imposed against Jokar Sarnayev. Um, On two grounds, the more significant of which is um, improper voir dire by the district judge during jury selection that insufficiently accounted for the extent to which prospective jurors were being influenced by media and social media, like in the middle of the voir dire specifically like there's like basically sort of that that the, the voir dire was not sufficiently careful for a capital case.
0: Right, um, right. And, so, and, you and, I, and you and I disagreed on the extent to which this, you were more sympathetic to the ruling than I was. How do you read the tea leaves of the cert grant? I mean, is that, well, so, a, is that a sure yeah. sign that this thing is gonna get overturned?
1: So, I mean, here's what's interesting. So, there, I think there are two, interesting, so anyway, on Monday, the Supreme Court granted cert and we'll hear argument. Well, at least as of now, sometime next fall, probably November. Um, I, I think there are two interesting things here. The first is um, the cert petition Right, that, the, that the Trump administration filed, um, at least part of the argument for the Supreme Court's intervention was not necessarily that the First Circuit was wrong, but that a case of this importance deserved the Supreme Court's attention. Um, and so as a result of that, I'm not quite as sure as I would usually be that this is a grant to reverse, um, right, as opposed to maybe a grant just given the propriety of the case. Um, of course, with this court, and with everything this court has done with the death penalty in the last couple of years, especially since Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy, you know, I think certainly the odds are in the government's favor um, of getting a favorable role on the merits. But that leads to the second thing, which is both the cert petition and the reply were filed by the Trump administration. Um, And we've already seen a number of cases where the Biden administration has either reversed positions from the Trump administration Supreme Court or softened positions. Um, We also, I think, are pretty confident that President Biden is much less comfortable with the death penalty Mm -hmm. than President Trump was. And so it's an interesting question whether the Biden administration, which had no sort of opportunity to file anything in this case, Right. What it's going to do now is it going to sort of go all in on sort of advancing the arguments that the Trump administration made against the First Circuit's decision? Or is it going to sort of take a more intermediate position or perhaps even try to scuttle the case? Um, I
0: think they're going to go all in. I think they're going to push hard for this. And I think the part of the reason why is Merrick Garland. Merrick, yeah. who famously was yeah. one of the most trend- Transformative moments in his career was the critical role he played in the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, which, of course, did result in death penalties. Uh, so I think that uh, I think that the just unless unless the president himself got very engaged and wanted to go otherwise, which I don't think he is or yeah. will, and, and wouldn't want to spend would be unwise to spend the political capital. Put it mildly to pursue this, so I think they're going to get the reversal, and I think they'll they'll argue this aggressively. This will be one of the one area where they where there's continuity, I think.
1: And then maybe they don't pursue capital sentence him on reband, like they get the win on the merits, and then with and then use the discretion of the executive branch to maybe not pursue the death penalty.
0: I think it'd be so expo- it'd be very politically explosive for them to walk away from it in this particular case. So I I, I could see that being certainly a greater possibility. But i'm doubtful that's what happens unless there's going to be a decision a collective decision to walk away from federal death penalty across the board in including which case, like in the guantanamo military commissions hypothetically well in in neither one of those if if they want to make that policy move i think it would be and they will think it will be extremely unwise to have those be the leading vehicles for it you want to find them you want to find something else that's going to uh, go over a little bit better yes. and then have it have the effect be happened to affect the Boston Marathon. Yes, yes, no, no.
1: Sarnayev and KSM are not exactly the poster child, the poster children for, 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 for but for the federal death penalty.
0: Now interestingly, if you're, if you're, if you're in the administration thinking about this, that suggests you better move fast if you're going to do this. So you create as much distance as you can between the announcement that we're, you know, as a matter of policy that federal death penalty is just not going to be pursued reverting to that and when these real flashpoint uh, cases, but especially Sarnaev. Um, so the clock's kind of ticking on them. You, you don't want to be in the middle of the media paying attention to KSM's trial and the Sarnaev uh, Supreme Court argument and have, have it be announced and have those be the lead fact patterns. Of course, none of the death penalty cases are gonna have appealing fact patterns.
1: Well, there's also that. Um, so there's one other, speaking of Guantanamo, there's a segue for you. Um, <laughs> the other potentially interesting, national security development in the Supreme Court is the so-called re unquote, of United States versus Abu Zubaydah of the federal government cert petition in the Ninth Circuit state secrets case involving Abu Zubaydah, um, which we talked about in some detail back over, I think, the summer, right, when the On banc denial from the Ninth Circuit came out, where 12 Ninth Circuit judges dissented from the denial over here on en banc, um, it's not, not a record, you could theoretically have 14 Ninth Circuit judges dissent from denial overhearing on Bach. Anyway, um, that petition was scheduled for conference last Friday and it was not on the order list this Monday um, which in Supreme Court speak means it was relisted. Um, it is often a very good sign that the court is going to grant a petition that it relisted once before you know, taking action on. So Bobby, as early as Monday, we could get a grant of that petition, which just to remind folks, the issue in this case is there are legal proceedings in, I think, Poland um, arising out of the CIA uh, rendition detention interrogation program and specifically the, you know, torture and alleged mistreatment of Abu Zubaydah. And as part of those proceedings, there was a request filed under a federal statute for uh, documents to be shared with international or foreign legal proceedings um, and the response was an indication of the state secrets privilege and then there was a fight over just how categorically the privilege precluded cooperation with this document request Um, and basically the district court said pretty categorically the ninth circuit reversed not holding that all the documents had to be turned over but argued the district court had to apply a much more nuanced analysis that's what has gone up. And so, you know, here, I think a grant would probably be a pretty good sign for the government because the posture of the case is very interlocutory.
0: Does I don't remember the details enough to know, but does this potentially provide the court either with a requirement or at least a possibility of commenting on this idea within the state secrets privilege jurisprudence about, some say... One position is that when the privilege is properly invoked, sometimes the very subject matter of the action yep. is such that the case simply can't be litigated. And then there's a critical view that says, no, that's never the right answer. You should always have to do it on a document by document, uh, deposition question or, or trial uh, testimony question. By question basis, in other words, it's it's an evidentiary scalpel like attorney-client privilege, not a jurisdictional bar. And this this is sometimes for those who are in the know. This is sometimes the question of does the Totten bar the Totten bar or is it, or is that is that just a separate line that has some overlap? I, I'm in print saying it's all one line. There's a debate now over whether it's going to be kept one line, but at least originally it was one line because the only big prior Supreme Court decision on this Reynolds. Relied on Totten, in, in part, um, but of
1: course, Ren- Reynolds is not exactly a decision I would. Is, uh, Reynolds is not a hill I would want to die on.
0: Uh, you, as you know, I've got endless views on Reynolds. Everyone agrees that uh, the particular uh, fact pattern there was it was a, a huge, huge mess. The doctrine is wait, 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 you can't, you can't not just say to that. On. Wait,
1: the, the people at home don't know what you mean when you say the decision was right.
0: Happened. Well, well, if I get to keep talking, I, I can tell them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we got to go down that, that rabbit hole then a little bit. So in, in Todden I'm sorry, in Reynolds 1950s, there had been a B-29 crash um, and the survivors, uh, there was a tort suit and there had been a post-accident investigation by the Air Force. They wanted to get a hold of the, of the accident investigative report and the Air Force resisted and their arguments shifted over time as the litigation pr- progressed. But eventually they said, well, um, there was that flight involved the testing of some classified equipment it turned out there was some rca radio equipment being tested and and if we turn over the document we're risking exposure of this extremely strategically sensitive technology so state secrets privilege attaches and you can't have the report it wasn't trying to get rid of the whole case it was just saying you can't have the report and uh infamously so I don't, let me let me spoiler alert for you um there was nothing in the report about the radio equipment that that was just a complete red herring um clearly clearly no final decision should have been made about whether the privilege detached without someone without the judge seeing the report and seeing with their own eyes in fact it does somehow have an unredactable amount of, of reference to classified information as to which the privilege detached. Instead, what happened was the trial judge demanded to see it, the government wouldn't give it. And then both the appellate court and the Supreme Court said, look, it's, what they said was, it's perfectly clear without looking at the report that that radio technology is strategically significant and would be protected. So we don't need to see the report, which misses the point. The point is not whether it's protectable technology. I'm sure it is or was. It's yes, but is there a word about it in the report? And in fact, the answer was no. So in that sense, that's the original sin of the Reynolds case. Now, that said, Reynolds, the precedent, the Supreme Court precedent is where we get the Supreme Court statement of how the doctrine of the state secrets privilege works in all other respects that are not, not related in a direct sense to that particular sin. So when I say that, Yes, the fact pattern was a big fiasco, but, but the doctrine remains that there is a state, state secrets privilege, that it works the following ways. You have to have these formalities, that it has this effect. Um, all of that would be the same, even if we changed the fact pattern to erase the government's sin and, and create a situation where the document actually was you know, completely protectable. The opinion would look the same. And so the, the, the reason all this is interesting is the Supreme Court never has come back to it. They've never taken another state secrets right. case. Right. And it's really controversial and important
1: stuff. And and, 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 so, and Zubayda is not alone. There's also the Fezaga case about the relationship between the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and state secrets, which was filed the same day as Abu Zubayra, Bobby, but which is on a slower track. Um, and it's probably not going to go to conference in the Supreme Court until the end of May.
0: You know what's interesting? Um, you and I were both involved in the legislative wranglings over whether to reform the state secrets privilege in the late Bush administration. The State yeah. Secrets Protection Act. Yeah, where you know, there was a lot of room for possible reform there, bipartisan agreement. And then the Obama administration killed it by adopting internal executive branch reforms designed to take the wind out of the sails of that effort and, and preserve executive discretion more. Um, I wonder if at any point the Biden administration would decide to spend capital going back to this. I think not. I mean,
1: so I I am on record everywhere except in the threads of my Twitter trolls as being very critical of the Obama administration for litigating positions it took that, you know, sort of crowded out the ability to have genuine reform in any number of national security areas. The military commissions are another example of that. Um, I, this will be an interesting one to watch. I mean, like the, you know, this, here's another case where the briefs thus far were filed by the Trump administration. And so, you know, will the Biden administration argue quite as aggressively against the decisions below as its predecessor? You know, the odds are good if the answer is yes, I'm not necessarily sure that's the right and best thing.
0: Yeah. I think that in the end, we will not get a Reynolds II mega rewrite of the whole privilege or even an engagement with all the different aspects of it. We'll probably see the court, assuming the, this case sticks, which it might not, if the case sticks there, we'll see some sort of narrow, fairly technical uh, slice where the court can say like, ah, see, we engaged the state secrets privilege, but kind of left it mostly
1: where it was. Um, so we are getting a little bit short on time. So should we go quickly through the other lower court cases you want to talk about, maybe save, save some of the bigger, round. Save some of the bigger yeah. stuff for, uh, for next week?
0: Let's do it. And let's again, invite uh, the audience, please uh, fire questions at us
1: in the There are so many questions in the chat, I can't handle it.
0: <laughs> there are none, right? No. Okay, all right. That will change soon, no doubt. All right, I wanna take note of a really, really interesting case that's still in the early stages that goes to the recurring topic of what, what degree of deference, if any, do courts owe to the executive branch when making determinations that relate to national security? and also to our, our constantly recurring theme of IEPA litigation. What's IEPA? That's the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. It's the- IEPA. It's the, exactly. It's the sanctions framework. So here we're looking at a particularly, um, a long unused, but now suddenly very important uh, variant of the IEPA scenario. IEPA says that when the president declares a national emergency on topic X, then Congress predelegates to the president the ability to invoke the foreign commerce power of Congress to impose sanctions on transactions with Uh, specifically identified uh, identified foreign entities. So North Korea is going to be sanctioned or this Iranian company or Vladimir Putin, that sort of thing. And we have all these national emergencies and corresponding IEPA sanction frameworks. Little bit obscure, but back in 1999, Congress at a time, uh, anniversary of Tiananmen Square, uh, at a time of growing concern about uh, China's rise, there was a special variation of sanctions authority created by Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act that year that said basically, uh, a variant of IEPA shall here, hereby be given to the president. If a private company in China with, with public, that's publicly traded um, has turns out to be uh, directed or controlled or in, in some sense affiliated with the People's Liberation Army, then there's no need to declare a national emergency. We hereby delegate iae powers directly to the president to sanction those companies in terms of Americans uh, trading in the, their equities and derivatives of those equities. And, and then it kind of sat there more or less defunct for 20 years without a list of such entities being generated as the statute called for. And it's kind of a recurring issue with Congress demanding to know, why aren't you at least creating a list of entities that could be sanctioned because they have that tie into the PLA. Eventually, statute gets modified. So it's not just the PLA, it's sort of, uh, it could be the broader Chinese industrial base. You don't have to be owned by the PLA, though many companies are. It's meant to get those other uh, Chinese industrial base companies too. And, and whether it's a good idea to just automatically be prepared to sanction companies for, for just being part of the Chinese um, military-slash-industrial base... This has been a weird, weird idea. We, we have a we have a lot of that in our country and we'd feel weird if somebody thought it was appropriate just to sanction all those companies. On the other hand, it certainly was an early sign of the way that U.S.-Chinese strategic competition was going to turn. And in recent years, it, it's complicated and I'm glossing over details, but the Trump administration towards the very end actually kind of invoked this authority and also declared a national emergency too in sort of a, a doubling down of IEPA sanctions invocations, and they've, they've issued lists of companies. Now, some of these clearly qualify, but there's a couple that are private sector companies that, are, that do not appear to be state-owned companies. They, they are what you, you might describe as sort of uh, large Chinese private entities that clearly have, as any Chinese company does lots of connections to the state, but are much more independent than the more obvious examples. One of these is the big cell phone uh, producer, uh, Xiaomi. Xiaomi. And Xiaomi, after they got designated as a quote, uh, communist Chinese military company or CCMC, that's the term of art. Xiaomi went to court and, and brought a bunch of administrative procedure act and, and other challenges. Uh, to try to get the designation enjoined. And rather remarkably, a district judge the other day granted a preliminary injunction. Um, and the reason I say it pertains to the deference topic is that this is the sort of thing that whether the government has a strong enough factual basis to categorize a company as sufficiently affiliated with the Chinese state, that's precisely the, the abstract scenario in which the case for for national security fact deference uh, is traditionally been quite strong. And here, the opinion doesn't read at all like that's really playing a role. There's there's really no uh, invocation of a thumb on the scale uh, in favor of the government. And I think in part, it's because the it appears from what I've read of the case that the record the government put forward was just really, really thin such that it doesn't almost matter if you put a little bit of a thumb on the scale, a little bit of deference. Um, There was just a little bit of evidence described, and it didn't seem to go towards real direction and control. So I think what's going to happen is I think the government didn't litigate this as full-throatedly at the initial stage as they perhaps should have. And we're now going to move on You know, when, when, as the case progresses beyond the preliminary injunction stage. We'll find out if the government can, in fact, come in with much more serious evidence to establish the factual tie in. And at that point, I actually anticipate they probably would see the court talk in terms of a little bit of deference. And if they don't and if the court still rules against it, then it's going to go to the D.C. Circuit. And I guarantee you the opinion will be all about the deference of the government in this context. But I also think. This is just yet another example of where the Trump administration, which which fundamentally didn't generate trust in the same way as other prior administrations in the court context, uh, just doesn't and didn't generate uh, the deference that uh, in any prior administration, you would have seen courts at least paying lip service to. So that's Xiaomi.
1: We gotta work on your definition of lightning round, buddy.
0: <laughs> well, you, you can learn something or you can just hear about it quickly. So there, there's the learning. I'll, I'll be truly lining with these next two. Um, we've extradited a North Korean, Man Chol Myung, uh, but no, the North Koreans did not cooperate. He was in Malaysia uh, because of, for a variety of reasons, uh, the DPRK has to operate by putting personnel out into various other countries where they can have more, uh, shall we say, Room to operate and more bandwidth online to operate with. Uh, and that does mean that sometimes the government in question will cooperate with the United States. Uh, there were charges against this guy, and Malaysia packed him off to us. It's really remarkable. Lord only knows what North Korea is going to do to the Malaysians in response to this. Uh, it's pretty impressive of the Malaysians to have pulled that trigger. And then there's uh, the Raf- Rafikian case. We, we talked about this a little bit. I won't add too much. Let's just note that. Um, that the Fourth Circuit looked at the evidence of actual Turkish government direction and control over the actions of these people associated with the Flynn Intel Group, uh, Rafiki in particular. They thought there was more than sufficient evidence to sustain the jury's verdict, and it was an abuse of discretion to, uh, for the trial judge to suggest otherwise. And likewise, that the various arguments that were rolled out in favor of a new trial and the alternative, sort of critiquing the judges, where the judge critiqued his own rulings on the trial, uh, none of them held water. And it, I mean, it's a pretty strikingly thorough rejection. And it does raise questions about like, what exactly was going on with that trial judge uh, going so far out of his way uh, to overturn the jury verdict. But it turns out Rafiki, and it's real bad news for him. He's going to go to jail, looks like. Um, and, and why don't we turn now, with Steve, to some Q&A.
1: Um, so there are a couple of questions that we got in advance and there's one in the chat. Um, I'll tackle, there are a couple of, two or three of the questions in the, that we got in advance um, are about uh, military jurisdiction over retirees, which you know, just makes me so happy that anyone's paying attention to this issue. Um, so um, one question is, which offenses should a retired military officer be most concerned about prosecution in a post-retirement court-martial? Um, And then one is, um, where are the courts headed with UCMJ jurisdiction over military retirees? Um, So one of those, I guess, is a a predictive question and one is a normative one. Um, To make a long story short, right, the current statutory law and the current position of the federal government is that any individual who's retired from an active duty component um, and is entitled to pay, whether or not they're receiving it, um, is subject to the UCMJ in perpetuity for any offense under the UCMJ, including offenses with no connection to the military. Um, I'm involved, as I think anyone who's listened to this podcast unfortunately knows, in two different cases that are challenging that argument, that line of reasoning. Um, Judge Leon in the D.C. District Court in November held that this is unconstitutional. Uh, The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is probably about to hold to the contrary in a case called Bagani. So, you know, this is sort of very much an open question and one that I suspect may be headed to the Supreme Court before all is said and done. To the question of what offenses should retired officers be concerned about prosecution? um, I think the reality is that it's still pretty unusual for the government to court martial retirees that the, the cases we've seen recently, Bobby, have all usually involved some kind of weird factual circumstance where civilian prosecutions have not been formally unavailable, but just would have been difficult um, so, for example, in both Larrabee and Bagani, the offenses were committed in Japan, um, not, I think, outside the scope of the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, but, of course, in a context that raises, you know, political difficulties. So, you know, for folks who are just sort of living their lives here in the U.S., I don't think you face that realistic a specter of being, you know, brought back into a court martial if, if you're a retired member of an active duty component who's entitled to pay. Um, but of course, you know, that's just for the moment. And part of what we're fighting for is to actually make sure that that's settled going forward and not just, you know, a matter of, of the whim of the executive branch.
0: We also got a question about uh, a prior recurring topic on the show, Dovey Mattis, which was an amazing litigation odyssey in in military detention odyssey that was a big part of the the early years of this show because it the case just went on forever remember, um, right i mean i it's so funny it just it feels like so long ago thinking back to this uh whatever happened with that case is the question this was uh basically an, a person with american citizenship but also i can't recall if it feels either saudi or yemeni citizenship was a saudi? saudi I think. yeah he's a dual citizen who who hadn't lived here but had been born here his case in that respect was very similar to the post 9-11 case of Yasser Hamdi, who was uh, the, the named per- petitioner in a big 2004 Supreme Court case involving military detention and an American citizen. So Doe, who turns out to have been named Abdul Rahman Ahmed al-Sheikh, um, he was in US military custody in the early days of our big footprint phase of operations against the Islamic State. He got turned over to the United States and it was, it was not planned for the United States to initiate our own implemented military detention operations over there. That was, that, was, that was a lesson we learned 10 years before, like try not to do that if you can avoid it. But here's the citizen and they kind of, the hot potato was stuck in their hands, burning their hands as it were. Um, and there was a challenge, uh, a litigation uh, began And the government was trying desperately to find a way to transfer him, you know, back to Saudi Arabia. What are they going to do? They didn't want to bring him to the United States. The case ended up fizzling out when he was sent off to Bahrain in 2018. Uh, And then the only sort of legacy element of that is um, apparently the state department had announced at the time they were canceling his passport. And, uh, but of course he's still, I think, Still, formally had his American citizenship. So, were he ever to try to return, um, you know, what sort of litigation might come out of that? But that's that's a shoe that hasn't dropped since then. Um, but watch this space; you, you never really know. Um, on the uh, on the chat line, um, we've got a question about uh, national security and domestic terrorism, and also one of the questions in advance uh, had also kind of gone into this area of recent events, thinking about January sixth and and this, uh, this rising tide of, of organized unrest, including by people who are bearing arms, at, at what point does, um, does national security as a field, as a metric of which institutions should be in the lead, which legal frameworks should govern what those institutions do, at what point is it right to talk in national security terms about, let, let's just start with that, with domestic, extremism, if I say domestic terrorism, it makes it too easy, arguably much too easy a case. But if you say domestic extremism, it starts getting more complicated. Steve, we probably agree a lot here. Nothing, I think for both of us, there's nothing about the national security category that necessitates that the threat actor or threat dimension have a foreign or inter or transnational element to it. You can have national security considerations that are wholly domestic in, in nature and origin. Is that how you see it as well? Yep. Yeah. What about the the, the question in advance had asked a similar thing about pandemics and the public health dimensions. Um, I think traditionally, yes, public health is a category uh, long recognized in national security and public health often are often two different spheres, but I think it's actually always been fairly conventional to treat the uh, the most disruptive and dangerous of public health events, and the, the quintessential example being mass casualty pandemic, uh, like Spanish flu or now COVID nineteen, um, as being in scope for national security consideration, yep. and, which is why you see the Defense Production Act being used uh, by both the Trump and the Biden administrations as, as part of how they the federal government went about its response. It's just that most of the relevant tools. Aren't the military and intelligence community tools that you, you think of with with human foes?
1: Although I mean, so so our national security law casebook actually has a whole chapter on domestic emergencies that in which public health crises are actually the lead example. Um, I, you know, I think the really interesting point here, and something that I hope one day to actually have some time to write about, um, is just how like how differently courts are behaving. Um, Right, that, I mean, you've, you've spent so much of your career, you know, writing about deference to the to decision makers in national security cases. And Bobby, we're seeing over and over again, um, courts showing enormous skepticism of decisions made by executive branch officials at the state or federal level in the context of responding to a public health pandemic, second guessing decisions that in a more sort of classical national security context, or at least more military national security context, you know, I think we'd both be surprised, perhaps one of us pleasantly and one of us unpleasantly um, to see the courts do it. And so, you know, to me, like, yes, the premise is absolutely right, that, that public health is in extremists, a huge national security issue. I'm not sure our institutions are acting that way.
0: Yeah, I think it's totally right. I also think, and we may not agree about this, but I think that the, um, the air was being led out of the tires of deference before this, in other areas, and there was, there was enough passion and and um, lack of trust and suspicion. As I already noted in the Trump administration years, there there were. There were some definite deference cases, especially at the Supreme Court level with travel ban, for example. But at the lower court level, you saw a number of instances where judges are saying, you know, hey, normally we might defer here, but we just aren't crediting this factual predicate. And, and I think very understandably so in a number of those cases. Going back to the Bush years and the sort of the peak of controversies, I think about, was it Anna Diggs Taylor's opinion on, uh, was it surveillance? There's one in particular that really jumped out at me as I thought about this as just like, Far from, far from being a, uh, a deference case, it was a, it was a sh- clear skepticism case. So a couple of possibilities. One is that the deference modality has always been overstated. You know, Easy to claim that there is this conventional or traditional pattern, but there have always been counterexamples. And, and it's just that you don't always have as many occasions to, for judges to give those counterexamples, but they've always been there. And so there's never really been as much of a rule of deference as we might have thought. And what we're seeing now on on that model is a lot of occasions and now on the public health side to to see that, yep, no, this is coming up all the time. I don't think it's quite right. I actually think there used to be a lot more deference. And I think that the trend to be less deferential and for courts when confronted with something that maybe ideologically doesn't land well with them, or there's some other aspect of it where it feels like uh, I'm on this team and and that policy is on that team. I think that deference is proving not to have much teeth in in certain areas. I think we saw that with Bush some, we saw it with Trump a lot. And now you're seeing a, a very, frankly, an unsettling public health manifestation of it by some judges shooting down what I completely agree should clearly be deferred to public health judgments in at least some instances. So maybe maybe deference is dying, even if it wasn't always an illusion before.
1: So I mean, I, I just I, I'm not gonna. I, I want to get to frivolity. I will just say um, that I radically and vehemently disagree with the notion that deference is dying in the conventional cases. I think there are notorious examples of courts not being deferential, but I think that in the in the mine run of cases, the courts are actually being remarkably deferential um, in sort of deferring to executive branch assertions in the name of national security. And just to throw one example out there, just to you know, pick a fight, um, see for example, the travel ban cases.
0: Yeah, no, look, I, I'm not saying it's dead. I know. Uh, yeah, not saying it's dead and my own examples included that one. I know. Uh, all right, let's get frivolous. All right, we got what? A minute and a half friends who are new to this. We never end without talking about something completely unserious in part because it's a palate cleanser as we transition back to, well, let's face it. We're here at home. We're gonna walk out of this room and see our kids at high school in the other room and at least we have to be in good spirits to walk our dogs so
1: your kids are in high school my kids are not in high school
0: (laughs) your kids are smart i I can imagine maybe they have left ahead my kids are smart too Um, i I didn't mean to imply otherwise so uh mlb if you had fancy baseball's number one draft pick who would you take who's going to have the number one
1: breakout year what's the right answer or what is my emotional answer
0: (laughs) i'd like to hear both
1: so the emotional answer is Francisco Lindor, obviously. Um, the correct answer is Fernando Tatis Jr. Go, Mets,
0: go. Um go. I'm hoping for a big bounce back, and I think we're going to get it from Lindor. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see whether – I have a dark horse pick for uh, for outstanding – and I'm going to I'm going to blow it on the name uh, – Jordan Alvarez mm. from the Astros. When he came up and had about an 80-plus game run his rookie year. Here you go with the Astros again. But then he only had 18 games last year and it didn't do anything. I don't think he was a flash in the pan. I think he was still in recovery mode last year. I think he's going to be at top five at least. And I don't know if I'd use my first pick on him, but I'd be very tempted to. And if he's available when I draft at number seven in my league. Seven. All right.
1: Um, really quickly, March Madness. Who's your final four now? <laughs>
0: I I can't do it because I stopped looking after my bracket blew up so bad and after Texas got humiliated.
1: Ah, that, that, that Texas man. I mean, you should have learned by now to never pick on to never, 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 you know, never pick Texas.
0: You know, we used to, we fired Rick Barnes for, uh, yeah, I can't even go there. All
1: right. So I'm just going to, just so that I can create a record of this on the off test that this turns out to be right. My final four is Gonzaga, Michigan, Arkansas and Loyola of Chicago.
0: And who wins it all? Michigan? Oh, well, Michigan, obviously. Are, are they and in, in Gonzaga gonna hit during the semifinal or at the final?
1: Semifinals, unfortunately. All right, so Gonzaga gets- I mean, We assume they actually get through, which of course will never happen because now I've said it. Yeah. Um, all right, listen, we, we, wanna, we wanna encourage the folks who are with us live, you know, if you still have questions that we haven't gotten to, please do feel free to follow up with us afterwards. Um, but usually our outro for the podcast, I say something like, you know, I'm at Steve on Twitter. Bobby's at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. Um, we are at NSL podcast on Twitter. And we say, well, I say, stay safe out there, which has really evolved in the four years we've done this. And, and then Bobby I, says- And I say, adios.